Catherine, you want to talk in the microphone? <laughs> yeah. More of that. <laughs> Hello, baby. <laughs> Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List, and I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. And we have a very special guest with us today, Mr. Tom Brevoort! Hello! Tom, um, currently you are executive editor, Grand Poobah, in charge of many parts of Marvel Comics and uh, the beauty that is the Marvel Universe. We are going to be talking about Civil War today. What was your title back in 2006-2007? I think for Civil War, it would have been Senior Editor. I became, mm. I became Executive Editor, I think, right after Civil War, if I'm remembering right. I'm going to go with yes. That is 100% <laughs> right. You rise from the success of civil war the big <laughs> massive story um so this one's going to be fun this is uh, a part of our reading club that we've been doing the last couple weeks so for any of our listeners who have never read civil war we have made it super duper easy for y'all uh civil war is now currently free on marvel unlimited you can get the marvel unlimited app and you can read tons of free comics including all seven issues of civil war there's no payment required so just dive in and catch up with a lot a lot of comics that way it's available on both ios and android get in there get reading and i think you're really going to dig it there's also if you have young readers there's a bunch of free all ages comics on marvelhq.com and if you have the marvel comics app it is currently at least at the time of recording also free on the marvel comics app it's like we want people to read civil war tom i guess so yeah we're getting it um, out there yeah this uh 13 and a half year old story um that is <laughs> sold extremely well which is you know part of why we're talking about it because it, it means a lot connects to a lot of people um our producer jorge is very excited about this conversation he wants all the nitty-gritty behind the scenes details all right um, well we'll try to uh we'll try to live up to his expectations well, thank you um let's start up at the top with the credits because it was written by mark miller art by steve mcniven dexter vines more hollowell chris eliopoulos lettering covers by mcniven and vines and hollowell just dynamic creative team really really stellar uh we'll get into a little bit i wanted to ask about building them but the the series originally came out may 3rd 2006 through february 21st 2007 um so i like to think um tucker where were you when <laughs> the original civil war came out were you out of diapers at this point i what well i was uh, i think i was in eighth grade but no to answer your question still in diapers um but that was that's a separate thing i don't think that's necessarily what you're talking about um uh and um yeah I, you know oddly enough had uh even even then was was aware of of the kind of rumblings of the things going on so yeah this one's been with me for a while tom what was going on in the marvel universe at the time when we were just like leaning into civil war well the, the thing that had happened right before that was house of m house of m was the previous year's big event series and the first one of those we had done in a number of years like we hadn't done any big line-wide uh universe-wide crossovers for a while before house of m uh and so house of m had, had come out at, at the end of which uh the scarlet witch said no more mutants and so the number of x-men and related characters dropped to a small amount and a few other things came out of that and uh, beyond that, I think everything was more or less in place in a, in a, in a routine spot. Uh, yeah, the new Avengers were the new Avengers rather than the Avengers. So, so the Avengers roster had changed over to, to uh, Spidey and Wolverine and Spider-Woman and Luke Cage and all those guys. But everything else, you know, uh, Joe Straczynski was right in Spider-Man. Uh, you know, we had launched... Ed Brubaker's Captain America and Warren Ellis's Iron Man. Thor had not come back. Uh, we were supposed to launch Thor and plans fell through. So uh, that had not yet happened. Um, I'm trying to remember all the all the bits and pieces. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's also at this time, Annihilation is starting up in the cosmic sector of things. 
Planet Hulk, I think, is going on because that's why we don't see Hulk in this story. There's a there's a whole story behind that, and I'm kind of one of the reasons I'm not mentioning not necessarily Annihilation because Annihilation comes later. Annihilation drops in, I don't know, two thirds of the way through Civil War is when that started to come out, uh, and Planet Hulk was happening at around the same time, but the lead into Planet Hulk was part of the build up to Civil War. Um, I, and again, I don't know how deep you want to go this early, but what the heck? Let's let's go into it. Oh yeah, um, give me know, that deep goodness. You know, the big you know, secret of Civil War is that it wasn't supposed to be there; it didn't exist. You know, we had done House of M, uh, and we were going into another of our regular Marvel retreats to talk about the next uh, event, which was going to be Planet Hulk slash World War Hulk. Uh, and all of our big creators came together, and this was held in our offices uh, in New York. And most of the principals that you would think of were were present. Brian Bendis, uh, Mark Miller, Jeff Loeb, Greg Pak, Joe Straczynski, obviously Joe Casada, and myself, and Max Alonzo, and all of the editorial staff of the day. And, you know, through the first day or so, uh, and even into the second day, I think, you know, we talked about Planet Hulk and the stuff that Greg wanted to do, and it it all wasn't working. Uh, and it was actually really getting people worried. Uh, and the reason it wasn't working was essentially that it was all happening too fast, that, like, literally Planet Hulk was going to be... The Hulk gets shot off into space to a, another planet, and in the space of, like, five issues, he... He goes from gladiator to savior to king. He comes back with an army. He fights everybody. And that's, you know, Planet Hulk and World War Hulk. If you can think of all of that as like six issues, that's kind of what we thought we were doing going in there. So, you know, these things usually run about three days. And by the evening of the second day, you know, everybody left. Uh, and we were all a little, a little concerned and a little worried. And Brian and Mark were booked in the same hotel and they started talking about stuff. And like about two years before, they had started talking about Avengers in this way, uh, and that's kind of where New Avengers came from. Uh, and in this case, this was, like you say, the series came out in 2006, so we were talking about this stuff probably in late 2005. Uh, and in those days, even though it had been a couple of years, everything was still in the shadow of 9-11 and the aftermath of that. And particularly if you were here from out of state or, or out of town, and you walked around Manhattan in those days, there were like armed, uh, uh, you know, uh, guys in riot gear there, you know, all in the train stations and, you know, all, all of your major, your thoroughfares that were theoretically there to protect you, but that were also kind of, uh, uh, you know, disconcerting, you know, these are scary looking dudes with, with actual automatic weapons that can kill you. Uh, and yeah, they're you know it's great that they're going to protect you from whatever's uh, out there, whatever's whatever's coming, hopefully. But at the same time, you know it's very easy to imagine yourself getting shot in the crossfire of one of those things or whatever. So you know, Mark had been thinking about this stuff, and he came in the next day and said, "Well, I've got this idea for another thing. Like this is what we should be talking about. This is what's going on in the in the world, and sort of in a superhero fashion." It's the divide between freedom and security, and that's really Iron Man and Captain America. And so he said, you know, so we do this story, and all the superheroes have to register, and Captain America is down with the program, and he's going to register everybody, and Iron Man is not down with the program, and Iron Man will resist this. And that got talked about for about 45 minutes. Uh, and ultimately, I was the one in that conversation who kind of stopped everybody and went, no, 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 wait, 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 Mark. The Captain America of the Marvel Universe is not like the Captain America of the Ultimate Universe. Captain America is not a my country right or wrong sort of guy. Captain America in the Marvel Universe is a I'm loyal to nothing except the dream general kind of a guy. So I don't buy that Cap would go along with this stuff. Cap would be the first one there going, no, this is an abridgment of our civil liberties. You can't do this to people. We can't have it. Whereas, you know, I could make the argument that Iron Man in having a, you know, a futurist point of view, and that's how we were all kind of thinking of the character then particularly because that's kind of how 
uh, Warren Ellis had defined him and set him up in that run, could look ahead and could see the writing on the wall and could kind of you know, look at the situation and go, this is going to happen whether we're in front of it or not, so it's better for us to be in front of it and to police ourselves rather than let somebody else come in and police us in a way we don't like. And then it was Jeff Loeb who came up with the tagline, whose side are you on? And we hit on that, and everyone got very excited, except for Mark Panisha and Greg Pak, who'd been working very hard on Planet Hulk. <laughs> oh. But, you know, ultimately, you know, we, we told them at the time, and it proved to be correct, this is actually a good thing, guys, because what this means is you're, we're still going to shoot the Hulk off into space. That'll be one of the events that we use to kick off Civil War. And you'll now have a much longer degree of time to spend with the Hulk on Sakaar, developing that character, building his relationships with all of these other people. You've got all these ideas for the indigenous species of Sakaar and all this stuff you want to do. Now you're going to have the track to do that right. And then when we do bring the Hulk back, that can be a big event and that can be the next one that we do after Civil War. So all that stuff was kind of an outgrowth of uh, you know the planning for Civil War. But Civil War, we, we literally... Going into that that meeting, we we had none of it. None of it existed, and ultimately, you know, Mark with Brian and with Loeb and with Joe Straczynski and with all the people in the room, kind of bunged the basic shape of it together, just sitting there because we were desperate. Wow, <laughs> I've heard bits and pieces of that before, uh, but never fully laid out like that. Was there another retreat before Civil War started, or was this the last story bit that you guys all were in the room together for? No, no, no. There were a couple of different retreats during Civil War. There must have been at least two more. It might even have been three more. Um, it must have been three more, because I know there were there were two specifically. One of them was a retreat that we had where... Uh, you know, we had to decide on what the ending of Civil War was going to be, how it was going to to go. And there were essentially two different versions that were kind of kicking around. One in which Cap would realize that the, the fight he was struggling with, he had, he had lost the support of the people and therefore it was incumbent upon him to step down. And the other on which he would be beaten or killed, depending on which version of the conversation we had. And we went back and forth on this question because different people, ultimately, you know, Mark's opinion was probably going to count for the most, but there were a lot of very strong opinions in this room. Jeff Loeb at this time had been working on the, uh, didn't actually end up getting produced Buffy cartoon. And so, you know, at a given point, Joss Whedon came up to the retreat. You know, he knew he knew Jeff and Jeff had told him, hey, we're having this meeting. You should come and, and drop in and at least say hello to everybody and so forth. This was before Joss was doing any any real work for Marvel, before he'd done Astonishing X-Men or Runaways or any of the stuff he'd done. So this was kind of a big deal thing, Joss dropping in. Uh, and Joss came in. And, and you know, Joe pretty much put it to him as like the deciding vote. Like, Joss, which way would you go with this? And Joss said, I would do it this way. And that's ultimately the way we ended up playing it out in the end of Civil War. Uh, and ultimately, that way we ended up getting effectively two bites of the apple in that Civil War ends. Uh, and then you get the assassination of Captain America in Cap 25. And I know there was a whole retreat about that as well, uh, and because during that retreat was where the five Fallen Sun specials that Jeff Loeb wrote came from. Uh, and the part I remember about that is that for, for whatever reason, Ed Brubaker couldn't be at that retreat. Uh, and so suddenly uh, there were going to be these five specials that, that, that Jeff was writing that were basically... Uh, squatting on the top of Ed's story. And I had to call him at home and go, Ed, guess what? Here's what's going on. Here's the thing. And and convince him that everything was okay and that this wasn't going to be a, a total mess and totally, you know, steal his thunder or spike the story he was doing. But it all worked out. Uh, so, you know, it's all good. Yeah, it did work out. And, you know, just thinking about a like big superhero versus superhero story, this is sort of the the ultimate of it it's 
the all the superheroes versus all the superheroes it seems um what do you think you know we're going to get into a lot of this as we go along but what do you think sets this story apart from other you know hero versus hero uh, stories well i think the fact that it's actually about something that's besides hero versus hero um you know it's 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 got an idea behind it and it's an idea that at least in the core series um you know maybe not so much in a bunch of the tie-ins um but at least in the core series because i think mark did a very elegant job of doing this the 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 question and the conflict is presented in such a way that you can support either side um and and the reality of things is even going into this we all knew everybody kind of knew that the the anti-registration side was going to be the side that most of our audience is going to support because when you boil this question down to just the simplest version of it the 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 the, the kitty version the question is really do you want superheroes or for there not to be superheroes and the answer is of course you want superheroes so of course you're on that side um you know the interesting thing though is if you polled everybody in that room and 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 everybody even that that read the thing i think that the majority would feel differently about that question in the real world and that goes back to those armed uh you know officers in uh you know standing around in in new york like the idea that there would be somebody running around manhattan real manhattan the manhattan that none of us have seen because we're all quarantined right now um <laughs> you know with deadly weapons shooting people that they say are bad people for whatever reason that nobody knows who they are why they're doing it what they're all about we would want that guy stopped and unmasked and taken down and under some kind of oversight instantly. And it's only the fact that in the world of comics and the Marvel Universe, because we get to see those characters' thoughts and live their lives, and they've got their logo on the cover, we know they're the good guy, that we can get into that that fantasy. But in the real world, it's no question. You're on Iron Man's side. You definitely want somebody licensing and registering those guys, because otherwise, it's chaos. Yeah, that leads us to a to an interesting point that I think Tom you touched up touched on a little bit in a certain way just before. What about it do you think? What about this story demanded that Cap and Iron Man are the two representatives of both sides? Was that just a pure kind of practical result of of like you said Mark and, and Brian just kind of talking this over or do you think that there was something beyond that that kind of called them specifically to be the leaders of these two sides? Well, some of it is the time in which it was done. Uh, you know, Avengers had kind of come to prominence again as the central book of the Marvel Universe after Brian and David Finch relaunched it as New Avengers uh, and Cap and Iron Man were central in that book. So they had kind of been positioned again as key players in the Marvel Universe. But again, in terms of them as as archetypes, they're two big archetypes of a certain type of thought or a certain type of behavior in the Marvel Universe. And, you know, you could maybe have done that story with, I don't know, Reed Richards and Professor X, but it wouldn't have the same resonance. There, there's, there's something additional to the fact that those two characters are the characters that they are. They look at the world in a particular way, and the fact that they've got this long history together, like they're they're brothers in arms. They go back to the earliest days of Avengers. They fought side by side. And so them taking up different positions and going to town on one another, uh, you know, carries a greater weight and a greater resonance than, say, you know, a Reed and a Professor X or whomever, just because they don't have that same relationship. Tom, you mentioned House of M being the first uh, big line-wide event you guys had done in a while, this being the, you know, the one right after that. What is it like planning a live line-wide <laughs> Marvel Comics event? Well, the funny part about this, and people every once in a while who were there will remind me of this, but going into that retreat... You know, on the first day, you know, we sat down and we were going to be, you know, we were laying out the agenda and so forth. And, you know, we'd wrapped up House of M. I think by that point, like literally the last issue of House of M had only just gone to press. Um, and we were like, we're done, you know, House of M. And I was like, I'm so happy because I'm finished. And I said, I literally said on the first day, where's the effect of, 
well, I don't have to do this, so, you know, uh, it's all good by me. Uh, and then <laughs> literally by the third day, as we were talking about, you know, Civil War and Iron Man versus Cap and, and the Avengers and clearly all of the characters that are in my stable, not just them, but the FF, and we're talking about bringing back a version of Thor and so forth. And I kind of went, ah, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm doing Civil War. <laughs> I guess I'm doing, a, I'm doing another one of these right now. Um, and, you know, little did I know that that was the start of, because I, I think I didn't do every single one after that. You know, the next one up was, was World War Hulk and Mark Panisha did that. But I did a lot of them, uh, you know, and, and you know, it wasn't literally every year, but it was almost every year. Every once in a while, there'd be a little break, but it was, uh, you know, Siege and Fear Itself and AVX and... Secret Invasion and Secret Empire and, and you know, all of these things, uh, Secret Wars, all the secrets. I keep all the secrets, <laughs> you know. And, and so, you know, the idea that you'd do two of them in a row was crazy to me at that moment. Um, but, but I ended up doing a lot more than that over the, over the time. Uh, so now I kind of look back and go, yeah, you know, I just hadn't gotten the, the exercise with using those muscles as much as I have in years since. I think you're doing a pretty good job with them. I, I, we, we rather enjoy them. I know we want to talk about AVX and, and uh, Tucker was talking about, he wants to talk about Secret Empire. And, oh, yeah. And I mean, all these stories, eventually down the road, we're going to have to <laughs> ask for some more time from you. <laughs> Before we start getting into the, the issues, I have two more things I wanted to ask about because you talk about the retreats and the thing that, you know, Tucker and I always geek out about is when we're in the retreats and you start, we start watching the creators and the editors and everybody talking about characters and those moments and especially in a book like this and i i think of when i was in retreats for um secret invasion and thinking about what characters are going to be in the case of civil war what characters are going to be on which side um were there big debates were there hardest to choose like how did that stuff flow out most of those decisions i think i mean we produced scratch lists to start with just in the room because as you're throwing ideas around you start to do that and I think even the earliest scratch lists had Cap leading the pro-registration sign and Iron Man on the other side. And once we switched those, suddenly you had to start moving characters around because the argument that, well, Cap is doing this, so this guy will will will, will fall in line, falls apart a little bit when it's Iron Man and vice versa. Uh, an initial list was was generated there. And then, you know, Mark went away and wrote his first draft of the outline. Uh, and so some of that stuff shifted a little bit depending on like what characters Mark liked or cared about <laughs> or knew who, who they were uh, and which ones he wasn't as invested in. In addition, obviously, Civil War had a lot of moving parts and a lot of tie-ins. You know, we did, I think it was the first time we we did it, we did the sister book, which was uh, Civil War Frontline, uh, which had, uh, you know, was 30 pages a, a pop and had a number of serialized stories and a bunch of one-shots. And those all used up and ate up characters. And all the various, uh, you know, tie-ins and things. I had a list. I think I might even still have it. I probably do on my computer at work, so we can't look at it now because none of us are <laughs> in the office. Um, you know, where I was keeping track of the location of characters on, like, a script-by-script script or an issue-by-issue issue basis. Who's on what side, where they are. Here's all the guys that have been put into the prison in, in the negative zone. Here's who's where. And it was a living document because every time a new script would come in, you know, it would have to be, be updated and, and, you know, reflect whatever the new events were because they were just so many moving parts tough enough to track a captain america or an iron man through this but much more difficult to just keep track of things like what side is that random member of power pack on if we <laughs> if we've established it we need to we need to know and in the end mark is going to need there to be two armies one on this side and one on that side and they've got to be about approximately the same size and it's got to not seem like a massacre but like a genuine fight so you need a balance so you're constantly looking at that at different points and going well we've introduced 52 characters and they're all anti-registration so we better <laughs> figure out who the heck is on the other side uh, and and get some stories going where they're there or this is going to be a really lopsided fight when we get to issue seven <laughs> yeah I, I was having reread it today i was looking at the issue seven or six with the when they're in the prison and you have the standoff yeah. spread i'm like 
I, I don't know who some of these characters are. I love that aspect of these types of things. We'll get into that later. I want to get into that later. Last thing I want to ask, how was Steve McNiven cast as an artist? Because we talk so much about Mark Miller, but McNiven and his ability to freeze moments, his beautiful crisp artwork, the, his facial acting, his, the way he draws eyes, his brutal action, such a perfect fit. So he was on the new Avengers issues that were coming out around house of m and he was supposed to be the regular uh you know rotating guy on new avengers along with uh david finch uh you know in the middle of the conversation about civil war at some point and i don't know if it was mark who who said it or if it was joe or dan buckley or whatever but somebody went yeah and it's got to be mcniven yeah right. He's great. He, it's got to be McNiven. And and I also and, like to think that Dan Buckley now has a Scottish accent, <laughs> and not that like that. All of those guys all have Scottish accents. I'm sorry, and, please proceed. And and Brian knew at that moment in having this conversation with with Mark, he had totally lost McNiven, and and he'd ended up playing himself out of position on New Avengers because the you know New Avengers was a colossally popular book at, at the time and was selling massively and really the only thing that you were going to get that was going to be bigger than it that might have enough draw to pull a, a big artist away from it is something like civil war and that's exactly what happened all right let's dive into the actual series now the way we've been doing these reading clubs tom is we like go through we talk about some favorite moments some questions that we have and stuff and having you here is, is just going to make it so much cooler because we get into the first issue we've got the new warriors of the time and we've got four bad guys uh this whole opening scene so like important to the the storyline and i was like what how did you guys choose these particular characters, both the good side and the bad side? Because like Coldheart is not a character I even know. Right. Uh, Zeb Wells and Scotty Young had done this limited series that, uh, you know, sort of redefined the New Warriors as a reality TV show super team. Uh, and it didn't really do a lot of business. Like nobody read it. But everybody internally kind of liked it. And it got talked about. Joe was a big fa fan of it. Um, so when we were talking about Civil War and starting out, you know, the idea that these were, were were not only young superheroes, but that they had a reality show and they were filming stuff. Like, it seemed to be a good opportunity where things could go wrong because people were doing the job for not entirely the right reasons. And, uh, you know, Mark went home and, you know, read the issues and really liked them. And he saw this as like, oh, I'm, I'll, I'll do this and that'll help to bring some attention to this project that uh, Zeb and Scotty did. You know, not really thinking it through that... <laughs> Yeah, by the end of by the end of this, it's not like there's going to be a sequel. It's not like it's, it's going to be possible to follow up on it because I'm going to totally annihilate this. Um, in terms of the in terms of the the, the the four villains, those came about the way so many things came about in this, which is at some point in the process, Mark said, "I need some villains like this to do this," and you know, myself and people would scramble around and come up with a list of possible candidates. Uh, and he'd pick and choose from that. Nitro was fairly obvious simply because, you know, you need a big explosion and he's a guy whose power is to blow himself up. And, and honestly, you needed four villains there who were all going to pretty much die because everybody dies there. So, you know, one of the things you need is here's four characters that can do this and they're all expendable. Uh, and <laughs> even in 2006, that's not an easy thing to find because we kill a lot of characters and, and, you know, you want that impact, but if you kill them, you know you're not going to have them next month, and you're going to need to fight somebody next month, and next month somebody's going to need to kill four characters, and you're going to need guys. Um, so it's always that algebra of, okay, who is there in the back catalog that will mean something in a deep dive way to at least a certain percentage of Marvel fans uh, who have the right kind of powers and the right kind of background to fit this situation, but who we can blow up. Uh, and that's where you got the the four villains, and they're they're kind of a mismatched batch when you look at them. Um, you know, there, there's not really any commonality. You know, there's 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 absolutely no reason why these four guys would be working together. They don't have any sort of tie between them, other than they happen to be the four characters that we could come up with uh, to to fit here. And you know, they were in this fight in Stanford, and they got blown sky high. Poor Cobalt Man. <laughs> Poor Cobalt Man. <laughs> One of the things about this book and this series and this issue is every time I reread it, 
I, I remind it how quickly everything moves. Like the pacing is breakneck. And it, I mean, it, it, it needs to be for the purposes of what you guys are doing, but it's so fun and so fast. And you're just like, boom, boom, boom. Things are moving. Well, that's very much Mark's idiom. When I think of Mark's stories, even to today, I don't think they have a lot of fat on them. He tends to think in terms very much of high concept. What's the idea of the story? What's my big set piece? What's, what's, what's the thing I need to accomplish? And then how little do I need to connect all of those dots? So in creating each issue, like even in the original outlines and things, each issue has a central set piece or a central idea. Here's the big thing that we're going to have happen in each one of these. Uh, and then connecting them and, you know, threading the telephone line from telephone pole to telephone pole. In a lot of cases, he does it in between issues. Like you you go from issue one to issue two and X amount of time has passed and now we're here. And Cape Killers are already chasing Patriot through the streets or whatever it is. Um, you know, when the last thing we really saw in, in at the end of number one was Cap surfing away on the back of a jet. So, you know, he skips all of the all of the boring days to give you only the exciting moments uh, and is deft enough to be able to, to, to string it along and make you understand what's going on. You know, he does all of his block and tackle off camera and just presents it to you fait accompli. You mentioned the cap surf and the jet and everybody, I, you know, I think everybody loves that, that shot, that moment. It's beautiful. But for me, the kicker is the politician talking two pages later and he's like, and then he landed the jet in a football field before taking the pilot for a hamburger and fries. Ain't that just like Captain America? And I, I love that bit so much. <laughs> that, that's the cherry on top. That's the moment that like really connects again, it all. For again, me. that's a very Mark moment and a very Mark moment, particularly in terms of Captain America. That's a, that's a Superman moment from Mark's childhood when he was reading comics. Like that's the kind of thing you would have seen in those books. So Mark... And drops it in, and it's like you know, it's a nice, fun accent. It tells you something about the characters. It tells you why Cap is different from all the other Marvel heroes, and because it's all done in a balloon, like you can visualize it in your head. We don't have to take any space with it, but it gives you some additional characterization and some additional color to who these guys are. He does that all over the place. He's he's really good at that. Tom, as we kind of move towards the end of issue one, I. It is so striking to me revisiting this story again and again because, you know, even as we open up in the first 10 pages, it feels like such a pastiche of that era, of that specific time, of, of that kind of early 2000s with this reality show being kind of this inciting incident. And then with that image, I, I bring it up because you mentioned it, that very reminiscent of 9-11 kind of picture of, of these heroes kind of just overlooking the destruction that that happened there it really strikes me as like the timeliness of the timely comics in within marvel comics is that something that in the moment when you're like sweating it out and like running to you know the library to like pick out a villain that can die is that something that you're super conscious <laughs> of that you're like aware of like the relevancy of those moments of those things or is that just like an unconscious aspect of it well i mean to some degree in that and you were you were in eighth grade, so you know, this may not have this may not have struck you at this at the <laughs> in the same way. But you know, you're talking about a whole building of people who worked in in Manhattan, were all there on the island, you know, on the day nine eleven hit, and who saw the aftermath, who saw all the rescue uh, workers and all the guys going down to help out, and not just you know like in the day or the week after, but the months and years after that event happened and how it affected, traumatized, changed, and impacted on on the city and everybody in it. And you were among those people. So being able to craft those moments, whether conscious or unconscious, it's always there. Like somebody had said on 9-10, we would knock over buildings in a comic book story and not think twice about it. And on 9-12, you'd be thinking completely differently about the same sequence because your context had changed. And I think that's what it is. Like, there was enough enough time had passed by, you know, early 2006 that you could contextualize that stuff without the immediate rawness of, of, of the event, um, but in a way that still spoke to, right, that's a, that's a communal memory 
that everybody has. And so it's going to resonate in the same sort of way that cap fighting crazy Axis guys in, in World War II struck for everybody because there's a common reference point that everybody has. And I guess it's so perfect that this was being dreamt up in 2005. The issues hit in 2006, you know, because you can definitely feel the atmosphere of these questions expanding from the reality show of it, expanding from that image, expanding from the destruction of everything that happened as we end issue number one and we go into Tony, you know, officially saying, leave Captain America to us and kind of the gauntlet is thrown down. It absolutely feels like that thing of, you know, this is a story that, like you said, Mark just skips through so beautifully and so quickly and go from this small moment with this small team to you know the highest echelons of power in the country it feels like by the end of issue one we're asking what is the soul of this country what's the soul of this culture of this society and i'm just still like i'm still blown away at how deftly it manages to do that well uh thank you again a lot of that is mark and and steve you know mark had honed those chops doing the ultimates for a, a couple of years at that point, uh, which wasn't the same thing, but which spoke in its own way to the the, the politics and the zeitgeist of the time in which it was being done. Um, so, you know, he'd, he'd kind of come through that laboratory of trying the different things and figuring out what worked and what didn't and what could be made to work better. Uh, and so, you know, he was definitely on his game being able to come into Civil War uh, and to hit this in that kind of fashion. Yeah, it's, it, it really hits. Uh, let's move on to issue number two, because um, as I was rereading it, I feel, you know, when you know everything that's going on, especially the early parts of the second issue, feel like a calm before the storm that's coming. You've got quick cuts between scenes. You're setting up sides. You're seeing the ideologies. Uh, for me, I really like the personal emotional stuff that hits really quickly. The FF, particularly throughout the story, they are not huge you know, as a group, not huge parts of it, although Reed is very important, Sue is very important, that their through thread um, of the emotional part of it is really important to me and really struck with me as I reread it. And then there's the scene with Tony and Happy to see Tony so vulnerable in those moments where he's like, am I making the right choice? And he puts his head back and just, you know, you're speaking to what you were just saying, Tom, the the Mark and, and Steve of it all hitting the right tones at the right times and, and just nailing those bits was so, ah, I love it. I love it. It's good stuff. <laughs> it's good comics. Um, you know, and then you, you pivot quickly because then you get into the big high stakes action and we've got the young Avengers and there's something to a great letterer um, that, you know, can't be stressed enough. It's like we, we see Patriot and he's running. And of course the art is beautiful and his costumes and tatters, but you just see him huff, huff, huff. Like the, the way that is put together on the page, you feel like there's tension to something so simple, uh, so simply done by great lettering and great comic booking put together. For sure. Again, a lot of that is, is even McNiven more than the, in the letter. I don't want to take anything away from the letter, but, you know, Steve, in terms of the way he'd lay out a page, the way he would syncopate his action beats, the way he would break up space and time, he was very considerate about all of that stuff. He'd originally come out of animation, so he would do a lot of his pages essentially in pieces, you know, and he would juggle and adjust those pieces. Like, you'd do the, he'd do the figures, and he'd do the background separately as separate elements and you know shift things around and tweak before he finally nailed things down and gave you a final ink you know like if you actually go and at this point it's scattered to the winds but you know after civil war was done and all the original art was being sold like his his agent had just stacks and stacks of drawings of pieces of things here's a figure of patriot and the figure's missing a leg at a certain point because at some point it gets it goes behind some other object or something, but it's on a separate sheet of paper, almost like a like an animation cell, because Steve is is constantly, or was at least at this point, adjusting his compositions as as he goes to try and find the maximum effectiveness in the way he was presenting a page. I had no idea about that part of his art. That's so cool. It, it adds so much to it. Of course, we're in issue number two. We got to talk 
about the big boy here, the big moment in in this issue, which is the you know Peter Parker's uh, identity revealed, Spider Man revealed. Um, how much back and forth, or was there any back and forth about doing this in Civil War? Um, well, you know, here's the thing: like this was this was a fairly contentious moment on a certain level, um, but that level wasn't about the reveal. At the time we were putting Civil War together, Joe and Joe had had started working up uh, what was going to be a brand new day. Uh, and literally that story was supposed to come out right after Civil War. And for unexpected reasons that nobody could possibly have anticipated ahead of time, it had to be pushed back because the artist took too long to get it all drawn. And so there were other stories uh, you know, that were done after that. But the idea was, hey, we're going to be doing the story where we unmarry Peter and Mary Jane and we we put all this stuff kind of back in the in in the bottle right after Civil War. So it doesn't matter. Like let's let's unmask we can unmask Spider Man the one time we can do it and we'll fix it again like right after we're done. Um as it turned out, it ended up being several months after we were done. But that's why if you look at the first issue of Brand New Day, why, why so much of it revolves around Spider-Man and Iron Man having this, this conflict and this fight, um, because it was meant, when it was originally written, to come right on the heels of, of Civil War Seven. So there wasn't a lot of contention about doing the unmasking. What there was contention about was where does the unmasking happen? Does it happen in Civil War, or does it happen in Amazing Spider-Man? And ultimately, this is one of the very, very few times while he was working at Marvel on stuff, that, that Joe Straczynski lost an argument because he's a very smart and very convincing individual. He is also, like, you know, as huge as a tree, so he's kind of an imposing dude, too. <laughs> and so, you know, between all these things, uh, you know, more often than not, if he felt strongly enough to want to convince you of something, he was a strong presence and and was very convincing. And this was one where he just could not get the traction he needed. Uh, and ultimately, I certainly think it was the right choice to do the unmasking in Civil War. Had I been the editor of Amazing Spider-Man at that time, I might have felt differently. Um, you know, and, and, you know, in Joe's tie-ins, like the, the Amazing Spider-Man issue that's right before this, you know, he gets to go right up to the moment of, you know, so Spidey doesn't actually take his mask off. And the one after it, he gets to finish the action and, and carry it from there. Um, you know, but he really saw that as something that should have been done in his book. And it was done in the big book instead. You know, that having been said, it's really more a part of the plot of the big book. So, uh, you know, I, I think you I think we're right. You do kind of need it there. But the actual event, because of the circumstances, because Brand New Day was coming, nobody was terribly precious with the idea that we couldn't do this. It gave us an opportunity. And Mark is a, you know, Mark swings big. Um, you know, he front loaded this with everything. His original outline for Civil War was actually 12 issues long and included Planet Hulk at the end of it. Like at the end of issue seven, the Hulk was going to crash down from space with his guys <laughs> and all these hillbilly Hulk babies that he'd made on Planet Sakaar. And they were going to spend, you know, five issues or whatever fighting the Hulk and how carrying out that story. And one of the first things that, you know, Joe had to say to him was, Mark, it's too much. And that story, that's that part, that's all Greg's story. He gets to do that. You got plenty here. We're gonna stop we're gonna stop after seven. Um but you know Mark Mark pushed for that. Mark pushed for we're gonna bring Thor back and uh you know again in that case it ended up not being the real Thor, but you know, there's still a moment where, like, Thor is back. He hadn't been in the books in a couple of years at that point. And all the big swings of Civil War really come from Mark going, you know, uh, we got to do the biggest, craziest stuff that we can do. Uh, and he would always he would always swing for the fences. I love it. I put a tweet out before we started recording to ask fans, you know, their favorite memories or thoughts or questions that they had. We had one from Elisabetta Negro wondering where the father-son relationship between Peter and Tony came from, um, because that has now been such an important part of the way people perceive the broader world, perceives Spider-Man and Iron Man and their connection. Um, and I, I think, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. It was probably set up a little bit in, in some of the comics, but it really does feel like it coalesces a lot within this storyline. Yeah, it was, again, knowing we were doing this, um, you know, and leading up to it, 
you know, the six months or so before Civil War started coming out, we did a bunch of books that were road to Civil War books uh, and that set up certain things in preparation for this. And one of the things that Joe Straczynski did in Amazing Spider-Man was he had Peter take on this internship position uh, with Tony Stark and begin to build up that relationship. He also began to lay a lot of the seeds for the idea that the Registration Act legislation was being put together and Tony was being consulted and all this stuff was going on. So that coming into Civil War, while this was a new idea that we had coming in, like we knew that if if somebody was going to convince Peter to unmask, you had to build up that relationship. It couldn't just be as simple as, as Iron Man going, OK, kid, I need you to take your mask off. Given the enormous history that, that Spider-Man has with hiding who he is and the, the enormous reasons for why that would be. The other thing that made it possible at that point really was that most of the reasons that Peter had traditionally had for keeping his identity a secret, you know, Aunt May will have a heart attack and die or it'll foul up my relationship with my girlfriend or whatever. Those were all not an issue at that point. Joe had earlier done the story in which Aunt May discovers that Peter is Spider-Man and is okay with it. So going into that period, she already knew, uh, and he was married to Mary Jane, who certainly knew. So so really, the only people around him that were going to be upset were maybe Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's and that's about it. So so he did do a lot of uh, a lot of the lifting there. He also did the a Thing Hulk fight that set up the story in which the Hulk was shot off into space by the Illuminati. Um, that actually happened in, in Hulk, but it was it was propagated by this thing Hulk fight that Joe did. So uh, you know, most of the people who were in the room, in the books that they were working on, did their part or, 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 or had pieces of story that could lead to other pieces in other places. And that kind of helped to make the whole Marvel Universe at that time feel a little more cohesive. Amazing. All right. So we move into issue number three. Um, we'll get to the big moment, which you've touched on a little bit already. But one quick thing, Tom, one of my favorite moments in the whole series is the the scene where you have Captain America, Hercules, Daredevil and Goliath sitting in a diner with their secret identities. It is a fun little bit of humor amidst <laughs> all the things that are going on really quickly. Can you connect the fake ID with the superheroes. See if you know who's no, who. no, no. I absolutely can't. Not a chance. Okay, well, not a chance. For, then, for our listeners, I will say we have Brett Hendrick, which is Cap's alias. We have Victor Tegler, who is Hercules's alias. Cooper Payton, who is Daredevil, and the best of the bunch, Rockwell Dodsworth, aka Goliath. <laughs> it's so good. I crack up every time. I wouldn't be surprised if those are all the names of people, you know, on like Mark's Mark's uh, darts team or something. <laughs> like there was all it was all people in his community that he that he knew. Um, that scene was a big problem in in itself. In that, you know, Mark had this idea that all the characters would adopt new secret identities, um, and the problem was at that point in the Marvel universe, virtually no character had a secret identity. Like everybody had had spent the, the the couple of years before that revealing who they were to the world. So Tony Stark, everybody knew he was Iron Man, and everybody knew that Steve Rogers was Cap. And like really, you were down to kind of Spider Man. Even Daredevil at that point, because of the stories that 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 Brian had been doing, had been revealed, but kind of was denying it, but not really. And um, so finding characters for whom they had to give up their secret identity was impossible and so like the list of characters that are there at the you know at, at that uh, lunch like the idea that hercules has a secret identity you know regardless of what the name is is absurd enough um <laughs> but uh, mark would have done more with that like he he you know he scratch wrote a whole bunch of things where we see all those guys you know going to their jobs and living their their normal lives until something happens and they have to throw off the clothes and get into action and then you know it turns out that it's it's cape killers trying to, to hunt down unregistered superheroes uh, and all that stuff ended up on the cutting room floor because not only was there just not enough room for it but it didn't really fit a lot of the characters that you had to play with i love it i could i could live in a whole book of rockwell dodsworth uh, maybe in, an, in another reality. You already touched on Thor, uh, which is the big moment at the end of number three. And I, I think he had been gone since Avengers Disassembled, October 2004. Yes. And so reading it now, we know what's going on. 
but I can only imagine fans reacting at the time because Thor comes in, he's just blown away all his friends and you're like, oh, because he has such weight as he's Thor coming into the middle of this. The reaction from fans, do you remember any of that? Um, well, yeah, that, again, that was a big thing. Uh, yeah, it seemed like it was the return of Thor and we we faked it pretty well because we had done all the hammer setup stuff over in Fantastic Four the months right before this. Um, certainly a lot of fans were really, really pissed uh, when 4 came out and you revealed the truth. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that, that you know, Thor kills Goliath and, uh, you know, Tony Stark and Reed Richards, who who built this clone cyborg robot thing, don't really seem to care about it very much. They seem a little nonplussed, a little casual about it. And so that's a beat that maybe doesn't hit quite as as well as it as it could. Uh, a lot of people were very unhappy uh, with that as a moment. I I love the moment. I love the the whole thing. I think it's it leads to having my favorite moment in the series, which is uh, probably at the end. Tom, you mentioned in issue number four, we have um, the, those big moments there. Um, we also start to see in issue four characters switching sides in the aftermath of Goliath's death. When you were, you know, you had talked about all the moments early on where you're figuring out character placements. Were you also thinking about those movements uh, back then or did those come as you built the story out further? Um, you know, a, a little bit, but so much of the stuff was being figured out on the fly as it was needed. Uh, you know, I can't say all this stuff was meticulously planned before Mark wrote stuff. More often than not, it would be Mark would have a, a hole. He would need something. Uh, and then it would be, you know, us going, well, I think it's this and this, you know, or it would be me telling him, I can't see so-and-so staying on side with Iron Man after this happened because he's got this relationship with, with Goliath or, or whatever it might have been. So a lot of that stuff was playing out in real time. What we knew and what Mark knew going in was this is going to happen and we're going to start having people, you know, change sides and be affected by the events that are going on, you know, such that it rattles their 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 sense of what is right and wrong and causes them to make different choices than maybe they initially started out with. But, uh, you know, except in the broadest sense, none of the, the particular, like once you get down to characters below the Cap and Iron Man uh, level and Spider-Man level, most of those decisions were made on an issue-by-issue issue basis as we went. The, the Spider-Man one being really important, that is what flows out into number five. Um, but I want to talk real quickly because we didn't haven't talked about the covers for the series because they were so striking. You have these wraparound images, the designs with the white bottom half, the copy and the credits on there. Um, and I particularly love issue number five, Spidey being attacked by the villains. Do you remember who came up with that cover concept and design? I don't remember who came up with the idea other than when we talked about all of this, uh, we were talking about giving it more of, a, of the treatment of a book than a comic. And there was some pushback, particularly from the sales department of the era, about that trade dress design, because not only for the course of a war book, but for all the tie-ins, the title of the book is not at the top of the cover. It's in the center. And they were very fearful that that was going to cause sales to fall off because people wouldn't be able to figure out what comic any, any comic was, or they wouldn't see it on the racks because any number of retailers, you know, still to this day, will rack books where you only see the top third of the cover or whatnot if they're in a shop that has a little more limited uh, amount of space. Um, but the impetus for it was really to make this look like something special and to feel more like like a novel or a real book than just another comic. That's great. In issue number five, we have one of my favorite pages, the splash of Punisher holding uh, Spider-Man's body uh, with a little after Keown in there, like a little cool nods but man that, that image is so so striking um and you know again we're talking about the the cadence of this storyline you go from that you've got like three pages to deal with that and then we're already moving over and we we see the negative zone prison which is uh the 42nd idea that they had i believe <laughs> is that correct yes am i wrong didn't reed have a negative zone prison wasn't there a storyline with reed and a negative zone prison and the man yes. thinker Yes, yes, Man. and that was uh, Robert Kirkman did uh, a limited series with me called Fantastic Four Foes, and that had happened right before we were going into Civil War. So talking about, like, what, what do they do with all the, the, you know, unregistered superhumans that they catch, uh, at some point I or somebody in the room said, hey, we're, you know, we're in the middle of or we just did 
the story where they've got this prison in the negative zone. Why don't we use the prison in the negative zone? Um, so it is the same prison. The reference is the same. Um, although I think Steve kind of expanded it from what was done uh, there initially. Um, but again, it was another way to kind of thread the thread the needle of different things that had gone on throughout the Marvel Universe and show that all of this stuff is happening in a communal place. That's uh, so cool. Um, issue number six, we start to see the 50 states initiative plans uh, getting to Arizona with these like fake Greek heroes, which <laughs> cracked me up. Did we ever see those heroes in action anywhere else? I don't think so. I, again, much like the the list of who was where, I had a running live document for years that listed, you know, what is the team of each state and who is on it? By the time we were done, while there are 50 states, I don't think we cracked 30 teams. Like, we didn't actually fill every single one. We built a lot of them, uh, and a lot of them are just mentioned in passing. But some of them, you know, were just throwaways, and I think these guys are, are among them. I think, I'm sure Mark's intention was, oh, somebody can come along and do stories with these guys, and they're, they're there, but nobody ever, ever did. Aw. Didn't catch on. Poor Missouri. Didn't get there. Time to shine. <laughs> Issue number six has, of course, uh, Frank Castle, Punisher, Captain America, those big, big moments, um, which I think, you know, one of the things that I saw a number of times come up was fans saying, you know, that Captain America Punisher moment really landed for them. Those that, that conversation because <laughs> it's conversation slash fight, which is all just very one sided. Um, had Mark written much Punisher by that point? I don't think Mark had written the Punisher at all. Even even to right now, other than in, in stories like Civil War, I can't think of uh, uh, Punisher stories that Mark has done. But again, a lot of that thinking behind that came out of the conversation in our retreats and this notion that, oh, okay, the Punisher is a soldier, and so he would, he would react to and interact with Cap like another soldier and like a, a, a superior officer, uh, and that would give you a way to maybe get the Punisher on side because I know we had a lot of conversation about these guys can't work with the Punisher. That's crazy. How are they going to be able to to put up with or, or, or reconcile their own morality with the fact that this guy is doing the thing that he does? Uh, and this was kind of the, the methodology that we used to, to get into it and make it plausible, at least for like the issue and a half where where it's a thing until it all goes bad as it inevitably has to uh, and you get this moment where cap beats the heck out of him and he he takes it because uh you know it's captain america and he won't fight back and it's you know it's his superior officer and this is this is proper this is military justice and military chain of command tom when you're helping map this out is it an instinctual thing where it's like okay we had this huge action beat and now we need the emotional resonance of a super personal intimate moment with a character i think that's just mark uh you know being mark more than anything like some of those some of those moments or some of those beats came out of larger conversations um i would bet anything that the daredevil uh 30 pieces of silver moment is a mark moment because as a as a as a good catholic lad um it's the it's the sort of moment that you know he he would naturally come up with the thing uh, material i know the impetus for that was joe straczynski because joe was writing fantastic four at the time and he had this idea that you know ben would abstain from from the argument and actually would go off to france to be neutral all right, we are in issue number seven. It's a big fight. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, this is the first time we hear Avengers assemble in this storyline? I think so. I can't remember uh, a, a point earlier where we do uh, or, where, or where it would have been appropriate. At the, the first time you get the Avengers in the story, it's the aftermath of Stamford and nobody's, nobody's cheering for anything. Yeah, totally. And you get that moment. There's the big fight. Uh, and I will I will tell you my favorite moment from the series, I think, is the big splash page of Hercules going after fake Thor. You got the couple of panels and then that beautiful splash where he just smashes the, the fake Mjolnir <laughs> down. And he says, thou art no Thor is just so good. It, it's so like it's such a cathartic moment because you've, you've got the loss and all, everything that's going on. Um, but, you know, what this does, the end, of course, you've talked about the things that we, we see, how it ends with Captain America sort of, 
seeing that he's failed the people and, and all the things that sets up. I want to know, Tom, if are you able to step back from a story, you know, big stories that take up so many hours of your mind space and, and look at them and appreciate and see the impact that they have on fans, they have on comics, or do you like focus on, I wish we had time to do this. I wish we had done this differently. Um, well, if there, if there are huge problems in a story, those are all I'm going to see. Um, but, but that doesn't take away from the other thing too. Like I can, I can appreciate the, the, the love and affection that other people who read this story have for this story. Um, they're always going to have a slightly different uh, you know, take on any given story or opinion than I do because I just have a different perspective on it, having been, you know, had my hands in the engine, so to speak, as opposed to just being on the outside uh, and being a passenger on the, on the vehicle. But that's, that's great. Certainly lots of people have uh, have told me that they they you know started reading comics with Civil War or got back into comics for, from Civil War and that it was a huge thing that they uh, you know their Marvel experience uh, as a reader coming up uh, and so that's always that's always a nice thing to hear um, I don't think you know again staring at it while no comic is perfect or anything um, there's nothing obvious in it that I look at and go oh I would really would love to be able to just go back and and fix that. Tom, thanks for your time. Sure. Thank you. Tucker, I am sorry I uh, monopolized most of that conversation. I'm glad you came in with intelligent, thoughtful questions here and there, aside from me just being like, remember that time when the thing happened? (laughs) That was cool. No, no, no. I think uh, that's why uh, that's the unique magic of Marvel's pull list, the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, that's right uh, once again big thanks to Mr. Tom Brevoort for um, taking so much time with us and revealing so many cool behind the scenes details I really do think we should just get Tom for a couple of hours as often as we can and just go through all his big events because having been here through almost all of Civil War since there were still things I learned for the first time talking to him today yeah pretty incredible Hope you all enjoyed it. Let us know. Use hashtag Marvel's Pull List. You can tweet at Agent M and at Tucker Marcus. And we'll be back with another episode next week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, MR Daniel, and Zachary Goldberg. Our audio development manager is Lauren Wiener. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton went to Spain during the Civil War. He did not choose a side. He's like a, you know, a latter day thing. Paella thing? I don't know. What am I saying? He's a paella thing. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. You're you. Are you.